Welcome to episode 70 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. We get to speak to retired agent Mike Layden, who served 26 years with the FBI. Layden, who has a law degree from Villanova University, was assigned to the Jacksonville Division, Pensacola Resident Agency, and the Detroit Division, where he worked bank robberies, kidnappings, and fugitive matters. Once transferred to the Philadelphia Division, Layden helped set up and was the supervisor of the Special Operations Group, SOG, which was based on a concept initially established in the Detroit Division. He was later appointed as the supervisor of the Newtown Square Resident Agency. To avoid an unwanted transfer to FBI headquarters, Layden stepped down from his supervisory position and was placed on the organized crime squad to work cases targeting the Philly mob. In this episode, Layden reviews for us an extortion case that resulted in the conviction of Philly mob boss Nicky Scarfo Sr., Philadelphia City Councilman Leland Beloff, and Beloff's administrative assistant Robert Rago for attempting to extort $1 million from Willard Rouse, a Philadelphia developer. During the investigation, two made men, Nicholas Caramondi and Thomas Del Giorno, became government witnesses, and their testimony eventually led to the indictment and conviction of the entire hierarchy of the Scarfo family. After retirement, Mike Layden became the vice president of corporate security and surveillance for Caesars Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. Currently, he still occasionally accepts private investigative assignments. I was almost relieved to get this interview with Mike Layden because the Philadelphia Division is known for the great work they've done in disrupting the Philadelphia LCN. But I hadn't had the opportunity to interview any Philadelphia agents about the Philly mob until now. Mike does an excellent job laying out the case that put little Nikki Scarfo behind bars. Before we get to the interview, I just want to say thank you for all of the listeners who have sent me well wishes regarding my daughter's wedding. I posted a few photos on my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author, and on Twitter at Jerry Williams One. You'll find them in the feed, or you can just wait until the July newsletter comes out, and I promise to include a nice family photo and a few other images from the wedding. It was fabulous. And my daughter, oh, she was absolutely stunning. I was told that I didn't look too bad either. Fun was had by all. And now that the fantasy dream wedding is over, I am so thrilled to get back to my real life, writing novels and interviewing retired agents for this podcast. I'm back. Of course, over the last two weeks, things have gotten even crazier. And although I started this podcast because I wanted to improve 
the way the FBI was portrayed in books, TV, and movies, I must tell you once again, I am so pleased that people can see through all of the negative and derogatory and sensational coverage of FBI leadership and know that in this podcast, they'll be introduced to the real FBI, and that's the FBI agents and employees who work the more than 200 violations of federal law for which the FBI is responsible. Hey, people, don't believe the hype. I can tell that while I was away, you had the opportunity to go back and pick up on some of the episodes that you had missed earlier. Thank you for doing that. My Amazon sales figures also note that you picked up a few copies of Pay to Play. Thank you for doing that. My time and expenses for producing and hosting FBI Retired Case File Review are supported by you. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping to defray the cost of me producing ad-free a weekly podcast episode. So thank you. And thank you for the emails, posts, and tweets. Keep them coming. I really do love hearing from you. Now here's the show. I want to introduce my guest, Mike Layden. Hi, Mike. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I am doing good. I am really excited to talk to you about this case because there's two things that the Philadelphia FBI Division does well, and that's go after the Philly mob and public corruption. This is like a great opportunity because this case has both. Has everything, yeah. So how did it all start? This case started, from my perspective, uh, when I was transferred to uh, the Organized Crime Squad in Philadelphia, Squad 1, in January of 1986. When I arrived there, the supervisor was a guy by the name of Klaus Rohr. There were two agents on the squad named Bob Brown and Andy Sloan. They had been operating an informant by the name of John Pastorella. Mr. Pastorella had been arrested trying to smuggle uh, a large quantity of heroin into the United States and was now cooperating with the government. He was originally from the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, and he had uh, some knowledge of the characters, the organized crime characters in Philadelphia, and he was a contractor by uh, trade. And back in those days, there were tremendous tax benefits to rehab historic buildings, especially in the old city section of Philadelphia. So what Andy and uh, Bob did was set Mr. Pastorella up as a contractor, doing some rehab work in that area, knowing that full well that it would just be a matter of time before some of the uh, organized crime types would try to uh, wheedle their way in to get some of his uh, money. And they started the uh, operation probably in the fall of uh, 1985. So I came on board in January of 86, and we were meeting almost daily with John, and he was wearing a, a recorder when he would meet with these different characters. Well, along came a guy by the name of Nicholas Caramondi, also known as the Crow. He, at that time, was a made member of the Scarfo crime family, LCN family. He uh, sensed that John could make money, and he latched on to John and became his, quote, mentor 
which basically meant he was like a leech. He was trying to just get whatever John could get. So they were going along. Uh, the, the case was moving. We got into February, March. Things were happening of a minor nature, nothing really earth-shattering. But one day, Caramondi meets with Pastorella, and Pastorella's wearing the wire at the time. And he tells Pastorella that uh, he had uh, has a relationship with a city councilman named uh, Leland Belloff. Belloff was the city councilman in the first councilmanic district in Philadelphia, which covered uh, the entire eastern half of the city of Philadelphia from Delaware River to the Scruple River. That was his territory. And he told Pastorella that Mr. Belloff's administrative assistant was a guy by the name of Robert Rago, R-E-G-O. Uh, this, this can go off on a tangent, but he was related to a, a faction within the Scarfo family, not a made guy, just a associate of the uh, Harry Riccobini faction, which had been feuding with Scarfo, but that's, that's another whole story. But anyway, Rago was Belloff's administrative assistant. Those two characters had come to uh, Caramondi and said that, that there was an opportunity to make some money because a developer who was trying to uh, put together a huge riverfront development along Thumbs Landing by the name of Willard Rouse needed certain uh, legislation passed by city council. Some of them were financial guarantees, that type of thing, to get the project off the ground. And Rago and Bella felt this was a great opportunity to make some money. So they went to uh, Mr. Caramondi because he had the muscle of the mob to, uh, you know, pull this off. So he came to Pastorella asking his advice on how to do this and, uh, you know, what particular uh, things he should ask for, that type of thing. So we in the Bureau knew that something was coming down, but we just didn't know what or when. And it went along, and Pastorella would talk to Caramondi, but Caramondi would not tell him everything. He would just tell him enough to serve Caramondi's purposes, not to, uh, you know, tell him everything. But all of a sudden, I guess it was in May, I go back to the office with uh, Bob and uh, Andy, and Klaus Ward, the supervisor, says, we have a meeting at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Willie Rouse is coming in to make a complaint. I mean, we looked at each other and we said, oh, we know what this is going to be about. Obviously, they, they started to reach out to the, to the Rouse people. So the next morning, Mr. Rouse and his project manager, a guy by the name of Pete Balaceris, and a couple of lawyers, I think, came in and they laid out this story where Balaceris, who was the project manager on Penn's Landing, had been approached by Bob Rago, who introduced him to this guy who looked like he was right out of central casting, a, a short guy, sunglasses, you know, in a bar with sunglasses and a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. He was telling uh, the Rouse representatives to get this Penn's Landing project off the ground. You're going to have to give us a million bucks. Wow. And Yeah. So this, you know, and it was really a great scene because after he laid out the story, I take out a picture from my folder. It's of Caramondi. He says, I say to the project manager, this is the guy who came to you, right? And he said, how did you know that? And they didn't realize that we had this other thing happening. So we knew it was going to happen. But we were very fortunate that Rouse was an honest and upright person who uh, well, let me, came forward. Let me, 
Yeah. Let me ask you um, a question. When you were hearing about this, when Karamandi was talking about it, did he say it was Rouse? Did he say it was the Penn's Landing, you know, river project? Or did he never he told Mastriella the name at the time. He just said, he did say Penn's Landing, the developer, and he never used his name at the, in the beginning. We knew who, if Rouse was the developer, he had gotten the uh, ticket to be the developer. So we knew he was going to be the victim of the shakedown. But we got very fortunate in the Rouse came forward himself with his project manager. So what we did was we uh, arranged to uh, wire up the project manager. He had an appointment with uh, Rago that evening, and uh, they met in a bar in Center City, uh, Marabella's, I believe it was. No, a place across the street from Marabella's. It's gone now. I can't remember the name of it. On uh, Broad and Locust. And at that point, Caramondi made the pitch on tape that we had that he wanted a million bucks or the project was not going to uh, happen. So he said, at this point, the legislation that Rouse needed to keep this project moving was due the next day to be uh, entered into city council. You needed at least a month ahead of time because there was three readings of the bill at three separate council meetings so that to get the thing done by the end of the year, the, the uh, legislative year, it had to be done the next day. So we get a call, you know, we, we go back, and this is now 11 o'clock at night, and we say, well, we got to put an undercover in there, keep this uh, project manager out of the way. So I called, I used to be out in Newtown Square, and I worked a lot of great white-collar undercover cases with a superstar agent by the name of Jim Balls. I called Jim and I said, Jim, uh, you got to get your uh, white collar outfit on. We're going to do a thing. And he, he's such a bright guy. He picked it up immediately. So the next morning, he got wired up. He met with the project manager. The project manager took him to meet with Caramondi. And the project manager handed Jim off to Caramondi. Jim gave $5,000 of government money to Caramondi to get the ball rolling, and they made plans to meet later to uh, get the rest of the money. As soon as Caramondi got the $5,000, our surveillance people were outside. He, he was followed back to City Hall, went right up to Belloff's office, and was seen meeting with uh, Bob Rago, and then he left uh, about... Two hours later, the bills were introduced in the city council. So wow. we had a pretty good cover on this. Let me so let me interrupt you. Yeah, let me interrupt ahead. you. Sure. Just ask another question, because you know we know that Philadelphia, unfortunately, you know, does have public corruption. Most of the mm-hmm. time, it's directly with the council person and whoever you know they're uh, getting the money from. Why right. did they need to have the Philly mob involved? Well. I think what really happened was Caramondi insinuated himself into that so that the Scarfo people would get their cut. Uh, in other words, he knew he, uh, he was he was involved in it, and in order for uh, them to get their cut, you know, he stayed in the conspiracy. He he didn't want them to just take it all for themselves because that became an issue later. Uh, the split: who was going to get what out of the million bucks, if if and when it ever came. So. For getting back to uh, the deal, the, the legislation was uh, passed or introduced 
and then they had three more weeks of readings and uh, discussion on the bill. So we had time. Uh, in the meantime, we got an emergency Title III phone intercept on Bellop's office. And then uh, there was a meeting scheduled from Jim Balls to meet Caramondi. This was the following week on a Wednesday. And Jim showed up. Caramondi did not show up. No call, no nothing. We found out later that Caramondi had to go to a making ceremony that day down in South Jersey. They were making some new members of the family, and he had to attend, so that's why he didn't show up. We didn't know that at the time. We were very confused because, uh, you know, it just didn't make any sense. But you know, these guys, they were on their own schedule. So <laughs> anyway, he contacted Balls later, and thinking Jimmy, of course, was a uh, Rouse executive. And Jim, we we brainstormed with Jim, and we said, we've got to show that he's in league with the city councilman, Bella. So Jim contacts or meets uh, Caramondi again and says, i got to make sure that the councilman's on board. He says, well, you're not meeting him. There's no way you're going to meet him. So Jim devised this thing. Well, how about if we go into a public place and you have your guy there, Belloff, and have them give me a signal. And they agreed that he would show up at Marabella's bar that afternoon, and he would make a signal, fist clenched across his chest like a Roman salute. Because that would be my signal to you, that his signal to you that he's in on the, the deal. The balls agreed to it, and sure enough, it happened. We couldn't get a camera inside because it was very dark in there and it happened in a very fast manner. But Jim was able to testify later that Belloff made the the signal to him. So this goes on again. They meet him again. Paramount, of course, wants more money, and we're not going to give him any more money. And we had a couple of meetings. One meeting I'll never forget. Paramount is starting to get suspicious now because no more money's coming. And they met in the lobby of the Hershey Hotel at Broad and Locust. And Caramonte starts writing notes to Jim. Jim's wired up and can hear him talking, but then he'll, there's no talking for a long period of time. Caramonte had written a note and showed it to Balls, talking about where's the money. And then Caramonte would set the note on fire. <laughs> he did this about three times. <laughs> and all, all of a sudden, we hear this guy coming by. He says, get out of the way, get out of the way. He had set this plant behind him on fire because he had put the, a burning piece of paper into the plant. And they, weren't even, they didn't even realize it happened, and the manager of the hotel comes running over. It was just unbelievable. But anyway, oh, this God. goes on. And on. <laughs> These guys weren't this stupid. We would we were never arrested anybody. But he he continued trying to get money out of balls, and we weren't going to pay it. And so that final day, here's where it gets really interesting. Uh, we see... Caramondi meeting with attorney Bob Simone. And later on, we find out Simone was in on the conspiracy. He was convicted of it later. But uh, he meets with Bob Simone downtown, and then the two of them split up. And we found out later that Caramondi had really gotten suspicious. He wasn't going to show up. It was supposed to be the day the thing was going to get passed, he was going to get the rest of the money. Uh, Jim tried to convince him to do it in a white-collar way, like Let's, you know, get a vendor. We can get the money out of the co- company that way. We can't just take a million dollars out. But Caramondi, did, you know, wasn't going to go for that. So we couldn't set that up. So the next day, he was supposed to meet Caramondi, give him the money. And 
Of this course, was supposed to be a, a million dollars in cash? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's how uh, unrealistic Caramondi was. I mean, that's the way the guy was. He wasn't very uh, sophisticated. Uh, so nothing happened. But, of course, what did happen, the councilman pulled the bill that day. And we had the phones on his office. And Mayor Good called, talked to Bobby Rago. And he says, what are you doing there? The mayor had no idea what was going on. Why did you pull it? And he says, oh, we can't talk about it, mayor. That's it. And I'll never forget this line Bobby Rago told the mayor. He says, mayor, kings come and go, but barons stay forever. <laughs> I'll never forget that line. I don't even know what that means. Well, what he means is you could be the mayor, but we're going to be here forever. We're running the uh, show. Okay. You know? <laughs> okay. We're, we're, okay. Just, we're just lowly barons. You're the king, but we're the barons, and we're going to be here after you're long gone. So, you know, you're going to have to deal with us. The thing about because this project is it's been years, for years, and yeah. still nothing has happened. Still nothing has happened, I know. I so know. I can imagine this, that talking, the mayor, mayor, mayor Good, was really excited yeah, that finally something was going to happen down there. Yeah, this was going to be a crowning achievement for him. And, you know, he was still smarting from the move debacle, you know. Right, right. And, uh, you know. So, yeah, he was really hot to trot, but it just didn't happen. So, in the meantime, as a, an aside to this, while we were wiring uh, Pastorella against uh, Caramondi, Caramondi let Pastorella in on a side extortion that uh, Caramondi and Belloff were working on. There was a developer in Old City named Harry DeVoe, he owned a uh, large apartment house down around 2nd and Arch. I forget the name of it. He needed some uh, legislation from Belloff's office. And he was told through Caramondi, and it passed, he took Pastorella in on it so he could give him some advice. He had a, Belloff had a girlfriend whose name I can't recall, and he wanted to get her an apartment downtown rent-free. And which is what this developer did in exchange. That was the quid pro quo for him getting this legislation passed through city council. So that we had the we had the whole case of that on tape as well. Uh, and then thirdly, the wiretap on Belloc's phones revealed. Well, also through Pastorella, both the tap and Pastorella, we knew that there was a third developer, a guy named John Bennett. John Bennett was a really interesting guy. He was a doctor, a radiologist, but he started developing, uh, you know, historical buildings in Old City, and he found out he was making more money doing that than practicing medicine, so he gave up medicine and became a full-time developer. He was trying to get an, an ordinance passed with regard to one of his rehab properties, and he needed uh, legislation. He gave uh, Belloff $25,000 in cash uh, to get this uh, bill passed. And I, I'll never forget the, the conversation between Bennett and uh, I guess it was Rago the day the bill passed. He said, I'm down here with my friends, the other developers who were partners on it. He says, these dopes think uh, this, is, this is what's really happening. They don't know what, <laughs> what I had to do to get this thing passed. And it was just <laughs> beautiful, just beautiful. So we had, so we had three basic counts against Belloff, the, the, the girlfriend's apartment, the uh, the doctor's development, and the, the Penn's Landing. So what we did was we arrested them about a day later. We arrested Caramondi, 
at Belloc and Rago and, and arraigned them. Now, we still had Pastorella wearing a wire against uh, Caramondi. So now that he's under indictment, you know, we can't wear a wire against him without his lawyer knowing it or somebody, you know, knowing about it. So we dismissed the, the indictments against the three of them so we could continue over the summer to listen to what Pastorella and uh, Caramondi had cooked up. And then later in October of that year, we re-indicted them. And Mike, can I ask yeah, why sure. why you why they were indicted at that time anyway? If you knew you wanted to continue, what was the well, decision to indict at that time? And then well, we didn't indict. We just got complaints and warrants. We didn't uh, use the grand jury. Okay, and then you had the time frame after the complaint. You have a yeah. matter of uh, time. Before you yeah, have 90 days to either indict or uh, you know, dismiss. So okay. we dismissed them. And they thought they were home free, and it really didn't help the case that much. But we did it just so we could continue to monitor Pastorella and uh, Caramondi uh, with the wire. Uh, in October, we uh, indicted. Now, this is where things really get interesting. Caramondi is put in the uh, detention center in Philadelphia. In the detention center with him is a guy by the name of John, uh, Raymond Mortorano, also known as Long John Mortorano, another made member of the Scarpo family. He was being held in there because he had been convicted of the murder of the roofing union boss, John McCullough. And he was in, in there awaiting, I don't know whether he had been convicted and there was on their appeal or whether he hadn't been on trial yet, but he was up there. And Caramondi bumps into him while he's in there, and he, he's nervous because he knows what a hair-trigger temper that uh, Mr. Scarpo has. He's scared to death something's going to happen to him, so he's talking to John Mortorano, Raymond Mortorano, asking for some reassurance. And this is where things really get uh, diabolical. Mortorano tells Caramondi, hey, buddy, they're going with Beloff and Rago that don't throw you to the wolves. This is for you. And he makes the sign of the gun with his thumb and index finger. So this just sets uh, Caramondi off. He figures, I'm dead. That's what caused him to uh, call us to start cooperating against uh, Scarfo, because he was sure he was going to get murdered, because he screwed up this uh, big, you know, big extortion that they were trying to pull off. I was going to ask so, if you could give us a little historical background, because I mean, that's what the Philadelphia di Division did so well, is to get so many of these made people yeah. to cooperate. Is this well, one of the first people to this turn? Was, yeah, this, this was done about 24 hours after Tom Del Giorno, a capo, who was actually uh, Del, uh, Caramondi's capo, he had decided to cooperate with the Jersey State Police because they had tapes of him bad-mouthing Scarfo. Uh, from the wiretap they had on his house at, at the shore, and he knew he was, he was probably going to be dead. So it, it happened almost simultaneously for two different reasons. Uh, but let me tell you the, the backstory on Mortorano. I've talked to Nick Carmondi since, and he, he thinks he was played by Mortorano. Mortorano's uh, son was a huge drug dealer who had been arrested in charge in a huge conspiracy here in Philadelphia. And he had hired Bob Simone to represent him. And 
Bob Simone recommended to the to the son that he plead guilty and everything will be fine. You know, you'll, you'll do some time, but you know, you can't beat this case. He pleads guilty and the judge gives him life without parole. <laughs> wow. So, oh yeah. It, it really, so Mortarano, uh, had a deep seated hatred for Scarfo and for, uh, Bob Simone. So Nick Caramondi believes that he was told a lie by Mortarano just to get even with Scarfo because of uh, what he considered to be a double cross with regard to his son. Does this get complicated enough for you? <laughs> yeah, but I get it. So he he, yeah. he knows if he tells this to Caramondi, Caramondi may turn on Scarfo. And so he exactly. used him. He, he used him, yeah, he played him. And, and guess what? Yeah, so this, yeah it, it worked. worked. <laughs> uh, so now Nick Caramondi at 4 a.m. calls the FBI office. Uh, he's scared to death to do so, but he did it. And he got a hold of uh, Jim Marr in the office. And that morning I come in around 8 o'clock and Jim calls me over and he says, let's go, we got to go somewhere. And he wouldn't tell me what until we got in the car. He says, we're going up to the uh, detention center to get Nick Caramondi. He wants to cooperate. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no, no, he's doing it. So we get up there. I'll never forget this either. I must have signed 37 pieces of paper certifying everything is fine. <laughs> I had total authority to do this. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just wanted to get him out of there, you know. <laughs> God, God only knows. But it didn't, it didn't come back to haunt me. So we get Nick and uh, get him situated. He is like a nervous wreck. I mean, he is so upset. He thinks he's a dead man. And we had to take him before Judge Fulham, who was the uh, trial judge in the uh, Rouse extortion, so he could get new counsel. And that was another great scene. Nick Nick Caramondi trying to talk to Judge Fulham. Judge Fulham's ready to jump out the window. Get this guy out of my office, you know. <laughs> it was really funny. So anyway, he starts cooperating, and of course he gives us everything. Not only the RAS extortion, but all the attempted murders and murders and shakedowns, extortions, drug shakedowns. It's just everything what the family had been doing for the last 10 years. And But then we have to go to trial. Now, of course, we have, here are our defendants now, which Caramondi and then Phil Giorno was involved in the conspiracy also, because he was Caramondi's uh, uh, supervisor, his capo. Uh, he also knew about the Rouse extortion, was able to corroborate uh, Caramondi. So we, as a result of their cooperation, we indicted, we had already indicted Rago and Beloff, but now... We had indicted Nicky Scarfo because he was in charge of running the whole operation as the boss. Hey, Mike, and can you tell us a little bit? Because I have people uh, listening, you know, from from all over. Can you right. give us a little bit about Nicky Scarfo? Yeah, Nicky Scarfo at the time was in his mid fifties. He was a uh, born in New York. His father was a made man, I think, in the Genovese family. They moved to Philadelphia. And he became a member of the old Angelo Bruno family at the time. He always had a hair trigger temper. And he he got in an argument in, over a, a, a booth at the Oregon Diner in South Philadelphia back in the, I think, the early 60s. He stabbed and killed a guy over this argument. He was put in jail for, I think, six years for uh, manslaughter and got out in four and was just a small-time maid member doing whatever he could to make a buck, you know, for the Bruno family. Uh, 
But his temper, his temper was such a problem, he was banished. Angelo Bruno did not like any you know, boat rocking at all. So he uh, determined that he should be taken out of the city. So they sent him, this is in 1963 or 64, they sent him to Atlantic City. At that time, Atlantic City was a dying resort. Nothing was going on there. He, he, his uh, ascension came after gambling became legal in Atlantic City in the late 70s. But anyway, he was banished down there. Uh, he became boss as a result of two things. The assassination of uh, Angelo Bruno in 1980. His successor was a fellow by the name of Phil Testa. Now, Phil Testa, his nickname was the Chicken Man. And if you're a Springsteen fan, if you ever hear his song, Atlantic City, his first line of the song is, they blew up the Chicken Man in Philly last night. Well, that's wow. talking about the assassination of Phil Testa. He was killed uh, because there were other young Turks in the family that wanted him out of the way. And they devised a bomb. A bomb blew him off the porch of his house. Uh, it was a set by remote control, and they put roofer nails in the bomb, trying to make it look like it was done by the roofers' union. But it was actually an internal assassination done by some rival members. When he was killed, the New York people knew that there was some kind of a conspiracy, and they called uh, a couple of guys up to New York, Philly guys, a guy named Antonio Caponegro and a Frank Sandone. They were behind the conspiracy initially to kill Bruno. They went up there thinking that uh, Caponegro went up there thinking he was going to be made boss, but he ended up being killed. Both of them were killed. And uh, the New York people knew, they knew uh, Scarfo through his father. So uh, I forget the name. Uh, anyway, the real head of the Genovese family was at the time. They designated that uh, Nicky Scarfo would be the boss, even though he was living in Atlantic City. So this was in 1980, 81. So in 81-82, Scarfo became the boss. And then he started a whole reign of, he loved to kill people because he was so paranoid and so bloodthirsty. There must have been a half a dozen to uh, nine killings. I wasn't around then, but I was out in Newtown Square then. But there was a murder, it seemed like every week there was another you know, m member getting whacked for whatever reason. So he was the boss, and that's where he came, came in. So with the testimony, we had those four guys indicted, or three of them, and also Charles Iannici, who was an associate of uh, Nick, Nick Caramondi. He was involved also. What happened was the Delos lawyer was a guy by the name of Oscar Goodman. Now, he's a famous mob lawyer from Las Vegas. He ended up... Oh, he was, eventually became the mayor of Las Vegas, if you can believe that. But, uh, oh, wow. He, yeah, yeah. He's a Philly guy originally. He grew up in Philadelphia. I think he went to Penn Law School. And he went out to Las Vegas maybe now 50, 60 years ago and he, with nothing. And he became a very – he represented all the mob guys out there, Tony Spilotro. He, as a matter of fact, if you ever see the movie Casino, he played himself in the movie. Cause he represented oh, I've, yeah, I've, I've seen that many times. Yeah, well, the guy playing uh, Tony Spilotro's lawyer is actually his real lawyer, Oscar Goodman. He represented Beloff, and uh, Bob Simone represented uh, Scarfo, and Rago was represented by a guy named Josh Briskin. 
uh, nice guy. I, I didn't know much about him. I think he was a friend of Rago's. R- Rago and Beloff immediately made a motion to uh, sever the case because they didn't want to be linked to a mob guy. And, of course, the judge granted it. The judge was John Fulham, who was chief judge at the time, an absolute uh, brilliant guy, but a, a real hard guy. I don't know if you ever had any cases with him, but he would not book any nonsense, what he considered to be nonsense in his courtroom. I mean, uh, I, I've seen him just totally uh, embarrass lawyers because wow. he didn't feel they were properly prepared, you know. It was just amazing. But anyway, he granted the severance. So the first trial began in April of 87. This was Beloff and Rago together. Lasted about two weeks. And uh make a long story short, it was a hung jury. There were a couple of counts that they, that they were both acquitted on. But we couldn't believe that they were hung. We found out later that the one juror that hung was a woman by her last name, I'll never forget, was Mongolusa. And even Beloff tried to telegraph it to the government lawyer at the time. When she was being voir for jury, he said, are you any relation to the famous jurist? Now, her, it was her uncle, I think, who he was long dead, but his nickname was Turn him loose, Mongolusa. <laughs> he was on the bench. <laughs> okay, that well that- yeah, that would be a clue that you don't want that, was that a clue. person on your jury. But uh, the, the prosecutor missed it completely. She hung the jury, okay? So now we're going to say, Caramondi oh, and the other yeah, mob guy Caramondi and uh, uh, Del Giorno both testified. It did very well, I thought. But Caramondi, he, he didn't he didn't come off real good. They, did, they, he, he, they dressed him up like he was uh, a, a hood. The next time, for the second trial, he dressed up like he was in college, and it worked better. But <laughs> anyway, so now we're down and out. We we had a hung jury on this. Now we have to do Scarfo, and we tried Scarfo, and because Bob Simone was an unindicted co-conspirator in the Rouse extortion, he was uh, Fulham solved that problem by not permitting Bobby to cross-examine either Del Giorno or Caramondi because of the conflict because you know, he was supposedly part of the Rouse extortion. So he had another lawyer, uh, Miles Feinstein from North Jersey. He's a nice guy. He he would do the cross-examinations of those two witnesses. That trial started in April, went, lasted about 10 days, and they were uh, Scarfa was convicted on all counts. They were only out about uh, five hours, the jury. So we were feeling a lot better about that. About another... I guess in June, end of June, we started the, the retrial of Beloff and Rago, and this one went a lot better. We had a better jury, obviously. Uh, they were convicted on all counts. Like, uh, it took them maybe a day and a half to come back, but there were a lot of counts because we had testifying not only Caramondi and Del Giorno about the Rouse extortion, we had uh, the developer, Harry DeVoe. He was given immunity, and he testified about the shakedown for the girlfriend's apartment. And also, the uh, other developer, John Bennett, was immunized, and he talked about giving the $25,000 bribe to Beloff and Rago for his legislation to be passed. So did they testify? Did they testify in the the first trial too? Yes, they did. They did. What Uh, about Rouse? Rouse testified. He never testified. No, his 
project manager Pete Palaceros did, and uh, he was a good. Now he was a he very was, wealthy and well-known developer, right? He, he oh yes, developed yes. properties well, he, in New York and Chicago. And well, all that's his, he had a brother. He had a brother. Uh, I forget his first name, who uh, was a more, uh, I guess, a larger developer, but it was the same name. It's his. I think it was his brother. Okay. He, he was primarily. He did a lot of work in the Baltimore Harbor area, and was and has done a lot of work up here in Philly. He died prematurely. He died of lung cancer about twelve, thirteen years ago of uh, lung cancer. He was very young. He was like sixty three or something. Uh, he was a gutsy guy to stand up to, to these politicians, you know, and to these mob guys. Uh, but he became a hero as a result of it, and. Uh, that case, in my opinion, I mean, I'll never be able to prove it conclusively. That was the straw that broke the, the mob's back because uh, they had got, that was their high water mark. They had gotten to the point where they figured they could shake down a guy like Bill Rouse, you know, and get away with it. And that's what caused everything to go the other way, you know. You got these, got the whole, as a result of those two, uh, Caramondi and El Giorno cooperating, uh, we put together, uh, about a year later, we put together a huge RICO against uh, the family, uh, Scarfo, everybody, naming, well, there were like 138 predicate acts, uh, murders, extortions, drug dealing, you name it. And the Rouse extortion, we threw that in there again, <laughs> just for good measure. So, uh, and down the road, uh, I wanted to indict him with everybody else, but that was a stupid thing on my part, he would have gotten severed. Uh, then we had went down and we uh, indicted Bob Simone uh, as a result of him being involved in the Rouse extortion. What had happened, what happened with after, him? Well, here's what happened with him. After uh, the, the whole family was convicted, uh, the day Phil Leonetti got sentenced, he got 40 years, he, uh, he had called uh, Jim Marr and said, I want to cooperate. So he became a cooperating witness. And make a real long story short, he gave us another incident where Bob Simone conspired with Leonetti and Scarfo to, and a loan shark by the name of Tony DeSalvo, who had been owed a lot of money by another developer, a guy by the name of Lenny Palulo, owed a lot of money to uh, the loan shark, and he wasn't paying. They went to uh, Scarfo's people to collect the money, and they did. And Bob Simone was right in the middle of that one. He even got a piece of the uh, payment, and, and we were able to prove that against him as well as his involvement in the Rouse extortion. He was counseling uh, these guys all during the uh, shakedown of Rouse on you know what what they could do, what they couldn't do, and it, it was just a great great series of events. Everything fell into place. That was a tough case to make though, because he had the patina of respectability as being a lawyer, and everybody loved him. You know, all the other lawyers in Philly. Uh, they, they got somebody from the Department of Justice to prosecute him. There's none of the lawyers, I think, on the strike force had their heart in it because they all liked the guy. Wow. Crazy, crazy. So, and so he, he was found guilty and, and, and he got Yeah, he was too? convicted about a year later, year and a half later, he was indicted on RICO and some of the predicate acts like the Palulo uh, collection of an illegal debt and the Rouse extortion and a couple of other involvements. And he was given a four-year sentence. And uh, he, he also, he's dead. He died maybe 10 years ago. Uh, 
everybody's dying, you know, except me. Yeah. <laughs> You're still going strong. Well, that's I amazing. Hope so. That's it in a nutshell. I mean, there's so many side stories and, uh, you know, double crosses, triple crosses, and uh, it, it was an amazing case. And like I told you earlier, it had, you know, sex, the mob, political corruption, you know, you name it. It had, had it all in one case. It was really neat. Oh, I got a good story to tell you. Let me tell you this story. This is a true okay. story. It was in, it was in Oscar Goodman wrote a book. If you ever get his book, read it. It's, it's tremendous. He talks about when he was, uh, in town representing, uh, Belloc. They went out to dinner at Bookbinders down at second and, uh, whatever, down at second and Chestnut, front and Chestnut. And it was during the trial. And he said Belloc was so paranoid. He, he, he would see agents everywhere. And they were sitting at the, standing at the bar, and uh, Belloff says to Oscar Goodman, he says, see those two guys over there in the suits? They're agents. I know they're goddamn agents. And he says, relax, relax. He says, nah, goddammit. He, he had a couple of drinks, and he got a little drunk. He goes over and says, you goddamn FBI, leave me alone. The guy says, FBI, we're IBM. There <laughs> 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 were two guys having a drink at the bar, and Belloff almost... <laughs> You know, attacked them because he was sure they were agents watching. Him. <sighs> that I, I had never heard the story till I read uh, Goodman's book. He's got he 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 he's got some stories. That guy he, he's an amazing individual. And that's anyway, the attorney. Yeah, that's Oscar Goodman, the attorney, former mayor of Las Vegas. Okay. You know, <laughs> well, can you the great that? thing about yeah, the great thing about this case is that. You know, of all the things that Scarfo and the Philly mob did as far as murders and, and you know, just yeah. really heinous crimes, mm-hmm. they start, this takedown, their downfall starts because of a public corruption extortion case. Right. And uh, that coupled with Scarfo's reputation for being paranoid and impulsive, who would kill at the drop of a hat, that, I think that trait of Scarfo is what scared Caramondi and Del Giorno into taking up with the government. They figured they had a better chance of living with us than they did with Scarfo because of his reputation. That too, you know. But the whole thing came to a head from this case. That's no doubt about it. The the other unfortunate thing about this case is, you know, you have these wonderful waterfront developments in all of these big cities. And Philadelphia for 30, 40, 50 years has been trying to develop their waterfront and Mm -hmm. have not been able to. So uh, the one of the big unfortunate things about this case is that the waterfront is still not developed. It's still still not developed properly. You're right. And uh, I don't think it ever will be now because it's too chopped up now. There have been little things here, little things there, but not 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 an overall you know, thought through project, you know. Yeah, well, I I can't say, yeah, I can't say that I would have wished that uh, Rouse had given the million dollars because we all know that even if he had done that, uh, something else would have happened and and, and the development uh, would have fallen through. I want to tell you one quick story, too. I just remembered. Bud Warner went to interview uh, Jimmy Tyoon who was a, a politician. He went to jail eventually down the road. Yeah, I know Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, well, Bud went to interview him about some aspect of the Rouse extortion. And at the end of the interview, Jimmy says, 
listen, will you please indict that guy, Beloff? I want to run for his seat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. He ran yes, for Beloff. He, he went yeah. to jail. Yeah. And then he goes to jail. At Lake down the road a couple of years, right? Uh, yeah, I remember that uh, well. I remember that well. Yeah. So, Mike, um, yes. tell us tell us a little bit more about you. You 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 know everybody who worked organized crime in the Philly division was such a colorful character, and you definitely were, were one of those people. Yeah. When did you well, join the FBI, and why did you join the FBI? I was going uh, over law school in 1967, and a rep came out and talked about. How, you know, you get a gun and a car and do anything you want pretty much and, you know, it'd be a lot of fun. And I was always enamored with the Bureau. And, uh, so I decided I'll take a shot, see if I can get in. And I got in. That's about it. Uh, I figured I'd stay a few years and then maybe come back and practice. But I just fell in love with it when I got in and, uh, I stuck it out. And, uh, I'm glad I did, you know. Did you spend most of your time in the Philly division? No, well, I came in under Hoover. So, uh, he, he had a rule, you go to a first office for a year, and if you're from Northeast, you go to the South. So I went to Jacksonville, Florida. I was there two months, just hung my last picture in our apartment when I got transferred to the resident agency in Pensacola, which was 400 miles west, you know. So we packed up and went out there, stayed there for about eight or nine months, and then my second office was Detroit. In 69, I got there. I left there in 76. I got my office of preference back to Philly, which is my home. Uh, I got back here in January of 76. I was on the surveillance squad, became the supervisor of that squad. Then I got the supervisory job out in Newtown Square. And then they called my number to go to Washington, and I stepped down. I didn't want to make that trip because my kids were in high school. And that's when I came to work for organized crime in Philly. So that's basically it. So when did you retire? Yeah, I was just going to tell you that. I've I've been retired almost as long as I've been in. I retired in uh, July of 93. I took a job uh, head of security at uh, Caesars in Atlantic City for about three years. I got bored with that, and I came back here, and I hooked up with some retired agents and do some PI work just to get out of the house. (laughs) And that's where we are. You know, well, I'm still going to work a couple of days a week, and I'm a doddering old man, but I'm still pushing. You know. Well, you got some great stories, so thank oh, yeah. you so much. Thank you, so, Jerry. I think you do a great job with this uh, project, and I wish you all the best, and you should monetize it like I told you earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Just buy my book. Uh, that certainly yeah. would, would, would help out a lot. That would help. Right, so okay. I want to I give you the last word. I just thank you for giving the, us old timers the opportunity to, you know, talk about our old cases. And, you know, you can't talk to my family anymore. They shut me off, you know. <laughs> so it's good to be able to do that. And uh, you, you do a great service. It's a, of a historical nature, too, I think, because this stuff will last forever, you know. So it's great. And uh, I want to wish you uh, the best with the wedding, okay? Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Mike Layden, and you'll find links to several newspaper articles about the Leland Beloff and Nikki Scarfo extortion case.
If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you at the bottom of the episode show notes. You'll find all the social media share buttons. And if you're listening to this on your phone, you can, of course, share the episode directly from your device. Okay, so I have a fantastic crime fiction recommendation for you. I loved this book. When I picked it up, I had no idea it was going to be so good, but it seemed like an interesting premise, and it was. The book is The Good Girl by Mary Kubeka, K-U-B-I-C-K. It's about an abduction that goes horribly wrong. It's supposed to be a kidnapping for ransom, but the man that's hired to kidnap the daughter of a well-known judge decides instead to hide her in a secluded cabin in rural Minnesota instead of delivering her to his employers. The book's storyline follows the subsequent investigation to find her. What is so cool about this book is that it's told from multiple and alternating perspectives. The kidnapper, Colin Thatcher, the main character, Mia, her mother Eve, and the detective, Gabe Hoffman, who becomes emotionally attached to this case and to Mia's mother. The case is told in present tense and past tense. It is a page turner. I downloaded the ebook and I also got the audiobook and let the narrators read to me. Yes, I said narrators because for this audiobook, there are four different narrators reading the roles of the four different point of view characters. A pleasant and innovative surprise. If I sound enthusiastic, I really am. I love this book. Again, it's called The Good Girl by Mary Kubeka. And while you're at Amazon picking up a copy of The Good Girl, please don't forget to check out my FBI thriller, Pay to Play about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. Accepting her new case assignment may be the worst decision Special Agent Carrie Wheeler has ever made. And don't forget to join the FBI Retired Case File Review Reader Team, where I will keep you up to date on the FBI in books, TV, and movies with my monthly newsletter. When you join my readers group, I will send you a copy of the FBI Reading Resource, which is a list of all of the books, fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs written exclusively by the retired agents I've interviewed on this podcast. To sign up to join my reader team, all you have to do is go to jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.